like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I will be continuing my look at Philip Dick's 1966 novel, The Crack in Space. Um, so if you're just joining us, go, you can go back one episode and listen to my first part of my review of this book where I talk about its overall themes and go through the first four chapters or so. So I'm going to jump right in and talk about the middle part of the book, which mostly builds off the opening. Now, as the novel opens, we are introduced to the campaign of Jim Briskin, who's running to be the first colored president, and the major political struggle that the United States and the world is facing is overpopulation and the fact that a large number of people, probably around 100, 100 million, have given up on finding a job and therefore locked themselves into cryogenic freezing for an indefinite period of time. Releasing these people, they're called bibs, from cryo is... Briskin's main campaign promise, yet he doesn't really have a clear way of doing this. The only hope is colonization of another planet, but without terraforming technology available, this is not happening. So um, as we and we met our main characters, uh, Briskin and his campaign manager, Sal. Sorry, uh, Salheim. And Salheim is frustrated with Jim Briskin's unpractical hopes, and he thinks that the best way he can get elected president is to tone down his focus on, on morality and on the bib problem. And so as we pick up in chapter five, um, Briskin is initially relieved that Salheim has left. He has, had previously gone just for a pleasure trip to to uh, orbiting satellite run by a mutant named George Walt. This mutant has is basically like conjoined twins who have evolved together as two minds in one body, one called George and one called Walt, and his job is to run this orbiting pleasure satellite, which is one way that in a world where reproduction is, is discouraged, that people's sexual energies can be released without being directed into the normal uh, family dynamics of family and kids and all that. It's all tied to the population problem. Now, Briskin initially is, is relieved that Sal has left. He will now be free to follow his own ideas in the campaign without being burdened by um, Sal's cynicism. He goes to a meeting with Tito Crivelli. Crivelli is a, a private detective we met before. And Crivelli tells him that the Terran development has found a solution to the bib problem in the form of an alternative Earth, which was discovered via a malfunction in a Jiffy Scuttler, a transportation device that was first introduced in the short story, a uh, uh, prominent author. In exchange for this information about how to solve this problem, Briskin offers Carvelli what he wants, which is the position of attorney general. It's not quite clear to me why Carvelli who kind of comes off as a bit of a, a low-level hired goon would want this high position, but that's that's what he wants, and Briskin is willing to give it to him because this is the opportunity he's been waiting for to really have some definitive 
backing to his main campaign pledge. Now, meanwhile, Mira Sands is going over Crivelli's reports and relishing her victory over her husband. As I talked about in the last episode, Mira Sand is in the middle of a prominent divorce, which is a big media event. Her husband is Lurton Sands, is a major artiforg surgeon who has a mistress, and he has hidden his mistress somewhere, and no one really knows where. Mira Sands hired Crivelli earlier to find out where she's stashing his mistress. So she's going over the report, relishing her victory. Meanwhile, Briskin is giving a speech and when he comes out against George Walt's brothel, his orbiting satellite brothel, and announces the possibility of relocating Bibbs onto a secondary Earth. Mira Sands welcomes this, um, despite the fact that her main job is an abortion counselor and she makes her living off of, off of young people coming to her for an abortion. She is kind of disgusted with her job and she's glad that she may not have to do that anymore. She's one of the few older people in the novel who's not deathly afraid of losing their job. Uh, now the Sands couple is a microcosm of the whole issue of overpopulation in the sense that Lurton Sands harvests organs from bibs in order to keep people alive so they don't die, which means they never have to retire, which means there's overpopulation and not enough jobs, which means that young people can't afford to have family, so they go to an abortion counselor, who is his wife. So it's all a nice little circle in that family. Mira Sands, though, is presented a little bit more sympathetically as someone who maybe might be happy with being done with the whole job of abortion counseling. Herbert Lackmore, uh, now he he's fearing news about secondary earth, and he fears for his job. Now, who is Herb Blackmore? You may have forgotten. He's actually a character we meet in the opening pages. He's a bureaucrat who basically helps, puts young people in, in, into cryo-freezing. So he runs the bib system. And when he hears, he's kind of lives off the fact, he makes his living off the fact that young people don't have jobs. So the fact that the bib problem may be solved makes him fear that he's going to lose his, his own position. And so he decides he is going to join up with CLEAN. CLEAN is a racist organization that is trying to do anything it can to prevent Briskin's election and the election of the first colored president. George Walt also hears Briskin's speech and is horrified. Heim comes to visit George Walt, but George Walt refuses to see him. Instead, he calls Vern Engel of CLEAN, who they want to hire to stop. Now, of course, George Walt is two people, so we refer to him as they, we refer to them as they. George Walt wants to stop Briskin, so they're going to hire Clean as well. So you have two people in the same chapter who get driven towards a racist organization, not because they're fundamentally racist, but because they, they find racism as a way to fulfill their other political uh, aspirations and hopes. They invite Engels up to discuss the plans. George Walt, though, is highly agitated that a successful Briskin presidency may mean the end of his business. So he's not that concerned about the bib problem, but he does benefit from the fact that people aren't really encouraged to have families and normal relationships, and so they go into, you know, to consumers of, they become consumers of sex work. Lurton Sand is also horrified by the news because he knows he'll lose the source of his organs that he's used to save so many lives. And so you got a lot of people who really are threatened by the fact that that there may be a solution to the bib problem, which we're reminded of that a lot of people relied on a very unjust system that kept millions of people out of work and poor and uneducated and ignorant and ultimately uh, with no place for them on earth 
the only place they can go is into an indefinite cryo sleep. That that's not an innocuous system. It's not just a necessary evil. People benefit from it directly through their careers, and they're all threatened by it. So chapter five is kind of an important chapter for, for reminding us how many people are are tied to this uh, bib problem and benefit from it. So chapter six. Jim Briskin is overwhelmed by the political consequences of his speech and the potential enemies he has made. He's quite fearful of them. On the street, Sparky Rivers from the Golden Door approaches him and warns him that George Walt is working with Vern Engel and Clean and may try to kill him. Now, Sparky Rivers is one of the prostitutes. We basically meet two prostitutes from uh, the Golden Door Moments of Bliss satellite. One is younger and the other is a, a Jerry who through basically transhumanist means that's kept herself young and beautiful and uh, for for decades and decades um, sparky rivers is the as her name suggests a little bit more plunky now later at a bar lurton sands approaches briskin and tries to kill him but the gun was not loaded sands confesses that he has been using organs from a special public welfare warehouse where the bibs are located to supply his patients he justifies this as only potentially killing since most of the bibs will never reawaken and after this incident briskin begins to feel dread over his own survival he feels that he may uh, that he's made so many enemies from his speech that he may be in serious risk of his own life will be at risk goes so far as to think that this is not going to be the time that a black person will become become president. Tito Crivelli also learns of the assassination plot by Clean using new using the new recruit named Lackmore and you know Tito Crivelli is you know because he's a private detective he can he digs up this information about, about Clean and he learns about this new new recruit that you know this bureaucrat this little of a bureaucrat who's fearful of losing his job because of a new black president. Knowing now that he can't protect Briskin and therefore his cabinet position might be at risk, Crivelli decides to approach George Walt. He travels to George Walt's satellite, and when he finds George Walt, he threatens to kill one of them, leaving the other with a dead body and a dead mind attached to the other. And this is really a kind of a horrifying moment where Tito Crivelli, who's never presented as a pretty very nice guy, but he's really quite brutal at this moment where he says, I'm not going to kill both of you. I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill one of you, and the other will be left with this dead decaying body and then we've already it's already highly suggested that their minds are connected and so they don't really function as separate minds anymore so to kill one would be to like lose half of one's mind so it's it's a pretty horrifying thing and he says if you don't stop the contract against Briskin, i'm going to kill you crivelli eventually does shoot one of them um, and crivelli promises to kill him and prevent a miserable life as one half of the entity if he goes to talk to Angle. So chapter six ends in quite a horrifying matter as, as we see uh, Tito Crivelli make good on his promise, his threat to, to kill half of George Walt. In chapter seven, uh, we, we're reintroduced to her Blackmore, who's now fully into clean, fully engaged in that organization, and he's preparing for the assassination attempt on Jim Briskin. His weapon can kill from miles away. And uh, the, the, the technology is briefly described here about how it can kind of home in on Jim Briskin's DNA. Two men from Clean arrive, telling him to surrender his weapon since the plans have immediately changed. Lackmore resists, but is quickly defeated by the thug sent by Clean. So it seems that Tito Crivelli, through George Walt, or whichever, I think, I forget which half 
was not killed. But through George Walt, they're able to negotiate this new strategy for clean. Tito Crivelli then calls Briskin, letting him know that he has stopped an assassination. He advises the candidate to surround himself with people he can trust because future assassination attempts may easily come. First, he needs Briskin's help, though, to get off the satellite. Briskin thinks about using Sparky Rivers, who he had previously met, to help him get up to the satellite, but he is then met by Saul Heim, his old uh, campaign advisor, the one who almost left, or basically did leave his campaign earlier, and his wife, Patricia. They are the ones who eventually help him get to the Golden Door satellite. Now, this is kind of an awkward moment because he had previously refused going to the Golden the Golden Door satellite because of his the morale the more moral focus of his of his campaign. At the Golden Door, Briskin is able to get into George Walt's office. George Waltz attacks them and in the process reveals himself not to be a mutant, but actually to be a human normal human being with a synthetic body artificially conjoined to him. Now it's it's at this point that it's suggested that perhaps he was once this conjoined twin mutant with two with a joined mind but then one died and so the other to survive after that created a, an artificial construct on top of of the other body so it's a little bit weird there but anyways this george walt what's left of him escapes into a hallway tito suggests that they were there were once a mutant but one died um and and gives this idea that this is this is what happened it's actually tito's suggestion that that this is what happened to to George Walt. I'm spending a lot of time dwelling on George Walt because he becomes an important character in the climax of, of the story. Now, back on Earth, after this confrontation with George Walt, Briskin is thinking about changing some of his policies. Perhaps he'll let the Golden Door remain open. He feels kind of bad for George Walt for a strange reason, but he thinks finally with emigration, people will just stop visiting the satellite. Normal family relations will begin again. There won't be the need for this, 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 uh, place to dump excess sexual energy and again this is a weird part of the whole novel it's never really explained why people need to go to a satellite why they just can't use birth control i mean there's plenty of loving sexually active couples who don't have kids it happens all the time because uh, they, they don't want to and we have the technology now to to give people that freedom so i don't know dick's a bit behind his time behind his time when when writing this book a little bit old-fashioned um, also, the other thing we learned, though, is that George Walt proves that artificial organs are possible, and therefore Lurton Sands will not need the bibs anymore. He won't have to continue harvesting from the bibs. And maybe those, I think it was like 700 bibs who were left with half with their organs missing could still be revived with new organs. So he's optimistic at this point that, that he's not only going to win, that they're going to be able to solve most of the problems that Earth is facing with a secondary Earth. Myra Sands called Rachel Chaffee. This is the, the young woman from earlier in the novel who, who wanted to go become a bib and then was forced to meet her as an abortion counselor. And she says, just why don't you keep your baby? Because she's also optimistic. So chapter seven, despite, uh, despite the horrific moment in which George Walt is, is kind of left half of, a sh half of a person or half of a duo, you know, it's a pretty optimistic chapter, and it seems everything is being wrapped up quite nicely. And, of course, uh, we're only halfway through the novel, so something has to disrupt that. And that's what begins to happen in Chapter 8. Now, Leo Turpin is an old man. He's a Jerry, and that's a term for people who 
are, are kept alive and kept young, youthful, and able thanks to life-extending technologies like Art of Forge, um, organs. He runs an institution called Terran Development, and they're kind of the official branch of this effort to find a planet that, that can host the excess population and just overall the, the, this quasi-government agency that engages in developmental questions. And he's frustrated with that politics that let the news of the discovery of the alternate Earth escape out. He wanted to keep that secret and he wanted the government to control that narrative. He tells his aide, Don Stanley, that he needs to see the planet for himself. And the person, the fact that someone died and was killed by a woman worries him, but they had caught her. They caught this woman that killed this man. He was the, the repairman who originally went into the, the rent in the Jiffy Scuttler to get to this alternate world. And they caught her, and so she's safely in the hands of New York police. This is actually Lerton Sands' uh, mistress who was hidden away in this alternate world. So he thinks it should be safe. And they basically are on the assumption that this planet's empty. They hire the famous explorer Frank Woodbine to help with the exploration. Turpine meets this explorer Woodbine. Woodbine confirms that the planet is Earth. And they have, you know, they check the star charts, they check the geography, and they find out exactly it's an exact copy of Earth. It's like a parallel universe with another copy of, of Earth. So this is really kind of cool. This is an offered an opportunity to colonize Earth, but in a parallel reality, right? And therefore deal with the population crisis. So it's not so much exploration across space as you normally get in science fiction, but it's exploration across parallel universes. Really, really cool. I'm sure someone did it before, but this is the only example I've come across in reading science fiction of this of this particular idea. I mean, I've seen parallel realities before in parallel universes, but never never as a as a colonization narrative. Um, but anyway, Stanley reminds them that they need to go look for lights or evidence that there are intelligent creatures on the planet. They can't just start marching in. Turpin reminds them that they, he's not interested in the politics of this discovery. He doesn't care about the fate of the bibs. An engineer traveling with them announces that. He has, in fact, identified some light sources which emanate from where major cities on Earth are, but most of the light sources are actually in Africa. So the population distribution of this planet is different than on Earth. Of course, on our planet, most people live in Eurasia. I think three-fifths of the world's population live in Eurasia. In this one, most of the population centers are in Africa. And so... But they're also suggest that there are people here, so that causes the problem. Who are these people? You know, how much of the planet have they colonized? What kind of technology do they have? You know, can they displace? Can humans coexist with whoever they are? They wonder if they've traveled in time, maybe gone to a past. Maybe this is Earth in the past, but they reject that. They they're able to see the star charts and say that this is Earth at the same time. This is another parallel Earth. And so the suggestion here is there might be maybe possible many parallel worlds. Maybe this rent or other rents like it can move to different places. And then they see the technology of the, of the indigenous population here. And it's really kind of interesting. They, they see a man-made flying machine in the air that looks like a flying boat. It lands nearby, Turpin, it lands nearby, Turpin helps investigate the machine. And it's actually a glider made of wood and it's powered by a compressor. And it shows evidence of using a low-grade oil. The man who flew the machine escaped, but was visibly hunched over as he ran away. And what we're going to learn very quickly in this, after we get to halfway through the novel is that the people who live on this planet are 
basically descendants of, of Homo erectus. And on this planet, Homo sapiens never emerged as the dominant species. Homo erectus, who of course originally evolved in Africa and then spread all over much of the world, not all of it, but much of it, uh, and coexisted with human beings until quite late in our evolutionary history, but were eventually displaced or you know, killed off, or you know, we don't really know what happened to them entirely. But you know, in this world, Homo sapiens, if they evolved, they didn't make it. You know, they didn't survive. Which was possible, you know. Who knows how low the human population got in the in the early days of our of our history. Our our common genetic heritage suggests, you know, probably there weren't that many humans at one point. We all seem to evolve from a common a small group of people. The technology here is also interesting because Dick's whole idea with this Homo erectus technology is that there's no breakthroughs of technology. Everything evolves over hundreds of thousands and millions of years in a very, very slow process of accumulated knowledge. There's no leaps in technology. And everything's kind of low tech. There's really not fossil fuels. There's even like things that are powered by the compression of like, you know, ice when it when it freezes, you know, that that actually expands space and, and that, that creates a little bit of energy. There's all these weird, really low techy things. Now, I, you know, I don't know how much we can get out of this, but the, I like how Dick is exploring different foundations of technology, which is something, of course, cyberpunk writers are starting to do more and more, thinking about, you know, what would a solar-based economy really look like, one not based on fossil fuels. And Dick was sort of thinking of that in, in this novel a little bit. Okay, that's chapter eight. So now we know we got a problem. People live here and we don't know that much about them. And is it ethical to just take it over? Is it possible to take it over? I mean, they might put up a fight. So there's a wrench in the plans of Jim Briskin and, and Terran Development and others. So in chapter nine, Tito Crivelli, working for Jim Briskin, is studying the reports from Terran Development regarding this new world and the discovery of humanoids on the newly discovered second Earth. Tito Crivelli is worried that this will trouble Jim Briskin's presidential ambitions because he promised, he made a very bold public promise, that there's a solution to the bib problem. And now there doesn't seem to be a solution that's easily achievable. Terror and development thugs arrive to give him an explanation about the people's technology, which is based on the compressed gases and the use of expansion of water as it turns to ice. It's really a bizarre and kind of low-tech kind of um, technology. They have figured out that this planet is Earth in the same time as our own, but diverged around 10,000 years ago as Homo sapiens never emerged as the dominant species. They died out. The development of their technology is so amazing since they don't have a written language. Crivelli worries that humans will quickly make a mess of this planet. And Crivelli is one of the first characters who starts to think about the morality of interfering in a planet that's doing fine on its own, doesn't need humans to come in. So the whole narrative of colonization comes into here. And it's something Dick was interested in. He, he talked about this way back in Dr. Futurity. Um, I think that's the main book that deals with this. And it, it brings it up again. It, it's something I wish he would have maybe explored a little bit more systematically. But he certainly is concerned about the frontier, the hist like the relationship between frontier and and colonization. It's, it's something that, that bothers him a bit. And a lot of the narrative here is about, you know, what do you do about the indigenous people? You know, do you have a right just to plow over them? So Selheim, now once again working for Briskin, 
you know, optimistic about his chances, rejoins the campaign. He wants to get his candidate to work closely with Terran development. He thinks, you know, why not work with them? You're going to be the next president and, you know, they can be our allies. He manages to contact Fred Woodbine, the explorer, who tells Sal that Briskin should discuss that problem with him in person. And so in Woodbine's apartment, Briskin is shown the compressor and the other artifacts from the planet. So despite their technological ability, they seem to be stuck in an early age of civilization. And this comes out of the fact that they don't have any great leaps. They don't have like they don't, don't have the Renaissance. They don't have the scientific revolution. Everything is built slowly, painstakingly, generation by generation through kind of brute, you know, will. It, it does, nothing, nothing comes easy to the, the peaks. That's what they end up being called, the peaks yeah, for Peking man. But Terran development is planning to use their fascination with precious stones to trade with them. And again, we're reminded of the old stories we learned maybe in very, very old fashioned, you know, American history that the Indians, you know, sold Manhattan for some gems or something. That's, of course, an overly simplified narrative and not really very true. Most historians now don't emphasize that kind of look at, at the early encounters between Native Americans and, and Europeans. But in Dick's day, there, there was still that kind of talk. And, you know, here we're back to this. We're back to trying to steal a planet from people using precious stones. Woodbine suggests that they should take George Walt with them and convince the natives that he's a god. In any case, while the humans and the others can learn something from the peaks, Woodbine is certain that this, that this relationship will break down. It won't go well. Now, a researcher at Terran Development then contacts Don Stanley to tell them that they have lost a satellite, the QB satellite. That was, they, they took a satellite through the rent, rent I think, and, and, and have it orbiting Earth, this secondary Earth, and it got shut down. And Stanley worries that they'll need to shut down the Jiffy Scuttler to avoid a war with these people on the alternative Earth. So now things get real, because if they're just primitives, then they can deal with them like just a colonial colonizing force, right? Maybe buy them off or give them some technology or just conquer them. But if they have the ability to shoot down satellites, they have abilities that, that we're not really aware of, and maybe they, can, maybe they can put up a fight. So then we get to chapter 10. Um, Darius Pethel, he's, he's the guy who ran that Jiffy Scuttler repair shop, the ones who first discovered the, the rent. And he's demanding that Turpin allow him to visit the alternative Earth. And we start to see that people want to go there. It's not just the bibs who want to go there. It's other people who want to go there as well. Turpin leads him past the guards and sees Jim Briskin there. Pethel introduces himself to Briskin and declares his support for him. TV reporters are there as well, commenting on the historical events taking place as Briskin is preparing to journey through the rent. A small party, which includes social scientists, is traveling from the rent to Normandy. So this is this public initial exploration by Briskin as part of his campaign to go check out this alternate world and help him make it look like he's making do on his campaign promise. So at Normandy, they see one of the native people. Jim Briskin quickly identifies him as a pre-human, specifically Synthapris, I think it's pronounced. It's essentially a Homo erectus. It's the Peking man. Okay, so the Homo erectus is actually a fairly diverse group of, of people. And there are certain theories of the origin of humanity called multi-regionalism, not really popular today, that, that suggest we all kind of evolved from Homo erectus. So there were kind of different branches. This, so this is specifically Peking man, the ones discovered in, in North China in the 30s. 
So these encounters prove that the universe branched away from their own Earth much earlier than previously thought. Their technology emerged because of an immense amount of time they had on the planet. Nevertheless, it's pretty amazing what they have accomplished with their limited mental capacity. Salheim is ready to go home, worried about the political quagmire involved in trying to communicate with the peaks. You know, there's all kinds of concerns here. Are people going to accept conquering these, these people? You know, can we even do it? Is there room on this planet for both? How can it be negotiated? And Sal's always panicking, always, the, always being political, always trying to find the right solution to these problems, you know, starts to think, you know, we're not going to be able to work this out. And Sal, Sal's kind of like us, always seeing this problem from different sides as the novel goes on. You know, going from optimism to pessimism. So he's worried that eventually violence will break out. He also thinks that eventually if these two populations meet and encounter each other, it's going to be a civil rights issue. There's going to be calls for voting rights or intermarriages. And the whole question of are they human will come up. And Sal can't say they're not human. They can make tools. They have technology. They have language. You know, they're different, but shouldn't they have the same rights of other people? Tito Crivelli Wipe points out, though, that these peaks probably had wiped out humanity at some point in their timeline, so they're not exactly nice guys. Um, but violence probably ending with the defeat of the peak seems inevitable. And our own history suggests violence between these hominid species. And I think at one point they mentioned, like, Neanderthals were closer to humans, and maybe we interbred with them, but with these Homo erectus and others, they had to be slaughtered. And Tito Crivelli is the cynic here. And this isn't, you know, if it happened in the past, it'll happen again. It's just a cycle. And, you know, Dick, by this point in his career, starts to think about the eternal return a little bit. Of course, the best example of that is the maze of death, I think. But, you know, this here it's it's uh, a narrative of an eternal return in the sense that violence will, will, will always come back. The genocide is just part of human history. He also thinks about how Callie Vale, who is Lerton Sand's mistress, was hiding here when, you know, and that maybe she saw the peaks. And so we don't hear much more about Callie Vale in the novel. I think this is the last maybe she is, is mentioned. So that takes us through chapter 10 of The Cracked in Space. Um, I, I think that's, that's all the time we have for, for this episode. I'll finish up my, my thoughts on The Cracked in Space. Uh, st four more chapters left. I'll, I'll go over the events of those four chapters and then give you my overall thematic summary and why I think this is an important book in, in Philip K. Dick's canon. So as always, thanks for listening. If you have your own comments about this part of the story, the middle part of the story, about this, the moral questions about you know the, the fact that this planet is populated, about what does this mean for how we look at our own frontier history and the new world and all, and all that, you know, are there are there should we be looking at this novel as part of Dick's overall frontier thesis? Uh, whatever you think about this, though, please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll be back shortly with my final thoughts on The Crack in Space. And contentment forever If you